We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The baseball season is go, go, go. It's nonstop, relentless for every night, six straight months, and then hopefully another month in October. You also have work, friends, family, and a million other things going on. That's when you reach for a Coors Light. It's made to chill. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. I mean, the mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when your beer is cold. Is there anything better than opening up your refrigerator after a long day, seeing that icy cold Coors Light can or bottle in your fridge? The answer is no, there's nothing better. That's why when it's time to chill, you choose Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So that's why when you want to hit reset, reach for a beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, a brief history. Game 163, the Yankees and Red Sox in 1978. We are brought to you today by our exclusive partner, betonline.ag. We got some exciting news this week that baseball is coming back and other sports are slowly making their way back too. BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. They also put up World Series odds and over-under win totals based on the 60-game season. The Yankees are at 38.5. You taking the over or the under? And if you need even more action, they have NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Are you looking for something other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus. 
That's one word, Blue Wire. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Today's show is about the 1970s Yankees. They just keep on giving and giving. Somehow 78 was more chaotic for the Yankees than 77 was. 1977 was just a preamble. It was dominated by the love-hate triangle of Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, and George Steinbrenner. Billy played the role of the hot-headed manager. Reggie was the expensive and cocky superstar. George was the boisterous owner. Everything they did, every word that came out of their mouth, just added fuel to the fire. But somehow, while the Bronx was burning, the Yankees won a championship in 1977. That should have solved things, right? Entering 78, expectations were even higher. People rightfully assumed the Reggie versus Billy show was over after the way 77 ended. They thought that George would back off seeing as how the team achieved what he always demanded. But as you know, that's not what happened at all. By the middle of July 1978, the Yankees needed a telescope to see the Red Sox atop the division. The owner, unhappy with the team's performance, felt the need to meddle in every on-field decision. The manager was in a downward spiral that only led to one place, out the door. Newspaper headlines focused more on the clubhouse chaos than the actual baseball being played, which was best described as underachieving. Nobody could have predicted the Yankees would chase down the Red Sox and the two teams would play one of the most anticipated and memorable games in baseball history. The 1978 AL East division tiebreaker was the first since baseball implemented the two-division format in 1969. The Yankees and Red Sox, along with the Orioles, Blue Jays, Brewers, Tigers, and Indians were in the East Division. The Royals, Twins, White Sox, Rangers, Athletics, and Mariners made up the West. The East was a gauntlet. The Yankees, Sox, Brewers, and Orioles all won at least 90 games. And on October 1st, the last day of the season, New York and Boston each finished with 99 wins. But it was a long road to that point for each team. On July 19th, the Yankees were 14 games behind Boston was a combination of things that caused this gap. The Yankees had injuries front-loaded in the season and got off to a simply just okay, pretty good start. Meanwhile, the Red Sox played out of their minds. Managed by Don Zimmer, the Red Sox had the best record through June at 52-23. and They scored a ton of runs and added key pitching in the offseason, including Dennis Eckersley, to bolster their staff. 78 looked like it was going to be their year. The Yankees were 43-32 and at the same point. Good, not great. But things were getting worse, not better. They actually played really well in May, but then had a below 500 June. Catfish Hunter only made nine starts in the first four months of the season because he was dealing with shoulder and back issues. Willie Randolph had a cartilage tear in his knee that kept him out of the lineup pretty frequently. Thurman Munson had ailing knees and only managed six home runs all year. That was his worst power total in five years. They also had a logjam in the outfield and a feud over bullpen rolls but all of that paled in comparison to what was happening in the clubhouse. After Billy resigned in late July, the Yankees started to turn things around. The focus became playing baseball and catching Boston, and not just about Billy, or Billy and Reggie, or Billy and George, or Billy and George and Reggie. But since Boston had such a huge lead, playing good baseball was not going to be enough. The Red Sox were going to have to misstep, and that's exactly what happened. Boston began to suffer injuries of their own in the dog days of summer. In July, they were the ones that played below 500, which opened the door a crack for the Yankees to catch them. Going into September, the Yankees trailed by six and a half games and eyed an upcoming four-game series at Fenway. If they could just get within striking distance before that series, all the pressure would be on Boston. 
When they arrived in Boston on Thursday, September 7th, the Yankees had cut the deficit to four games. They had a chance to make a statement. In game one, the Yankees pounded out 15 runs and 21 hits. The door was open for them in the first inning on a throwing error by third baseman Butch Hobson, who committed an astounding 43 errors that season for the Red Sox. Seriously, that would not be allowed to happen today. In Game 2, the Yankees' hits and runs kept coming. They scored 13 runs on 17 hits, and the Red Sox had more errors than they did hits. They had 7 errors and only 6 hits. The Yankees finished them off on Saturday and Sunday, 7-0 and 7-4. In total, they scored 42 runs on 67 hits. The series was not even competitive. The Boston Massacre, as it was dubbed, left the Yankees surging and the Red Sox reeling. But that wouldn't be the last twist in the season. The Red Sox somehow regained their composure and won their last eight games to tie it back up. The Yankees could have clinched on the last day of the season if they had just won, but they lost to Cleveland and the Red Sox beat Toronto. The two teams were tied after 162, a coin was flipped to decide where the game would be played, and it landed on Fenway Park. Hours before first pitch, which was set for 2.30 in the afternoon, another thing that would never happen today, Yankee starter Ron Guidry was missing. Steinbrenner stomped through the clubhouse screaming, where's Gator? Even the manager, Bob Lemon, didn't know where the lefty was. Only Gene Monahan knew. Gidry was getting some shut-eye under the trainer's table with towels draped over the sides so nobody would disturb him. Some starters would be way too amped up to sleep in that moment, but that wasn't Gidry's personality. That didn't make him any less intimidating or any less dominant on the mound, though. Gidry was the Yankees' ace, no doubt about it. 1977 was his breakout, but 1978 was one of the best seasons ever pitched. Not that Guidry ever pitched, that anybody ever pitched. He threw 273 and two-thirds innings. His nine shutouts, 1.74 ERA, and 25 wins all led the league. Those numbers speak for themselves, but his season holds up over time too. He led the league in war, ERA+, FIP, WHIP, hits per nine, and finished second in MVP voting behind Jim Rice. I promise this is the only nerd stats section of the episode, but it needs to be said. Gidry's 9.1 war that season is the 18th best by a starting pitcher in the last 50 years. Pedro's 1999 tops the list with a ridiculous 11.6 war. I know war isn't everything, but it does demonstrate that Gator's 78 season is an elite company. When the Yankees were teetering in the first half of the season, a pitcher like Gidry was invaluable. An extended losing streak could have tanked the season for good, but they were always stopped when Gator took the mound. The year prior, Guidry exploded onto the scene, almost by accident. He barely had 30 career innings under his belt and wasn't even in the rotation to start the 77 season. That seems crazy now, but the Yankees had a rotation with established starters, guys like Catfish Hunter, Ed Figueroa, and Mike Torres, who they acquired in April. After the Yankees acquired Torres, the Yankees penciled him in for his next scheduled start, which was going to be April 29th, but instead he went home to take care of some personal business. So the Yankees needed a fill-in starter. Billy called on an unproven lefty who ended up throwing eight and a third innings of shutout ball. Guidry would end up making 24 more starts that year, supplanting his spot in the Yankees rotation. Once Torres did pitch for the Yankees, he was pretty solid and helped them win a championship. He was a free agent after the year and wanted to re-sign in New York, but Steinbrenner refused to meet his asking price, 540000 so he signed elsewhere. He signed with Boston. And guess who was on the mound for Boston on October 2nd, 1978? Mike Torres. 
Torres was a solid pitcher, but Guidry versus Torres is a mismatch on paper. But Guidry was pitching on three days rest for the third consecutive start. The Yankees needed him down the stretch to fend off Boston, and had they just won on the last day of the season, Guidry would have been scheduled to start the ALCS on normal rest. But instead, he had to take the ball for the 35th time and without his best stuff. Boston's lineup didn't make things easier. They were stacked. They had Carlton Fisk, Fred Lynn, Dwight Evans, Carl Yastrzemski, and Jim Rice, the MVP winner. They led a lineup that scored the second most runs in baseball. After a scoreless first, Yaz tagged Guidry for a solo homer in the second. By 78, Yaz was near the end of his career, but still a very respected hitter. He took a pitch up and in out of the ballpark. In his book, Guidry said, Yaz chopped at it like he was wielding an axe. Perhaps on normal rest, Guidry blows the fastball by Yaz, but this game was different. Guidry had to constantly battle. He couldn't mow down hitter after hitter like he was used to, like he did on June 17th when he struck out 18 California Angels at the stadium. In game 163, he stranded base runners. He scattered hits and allowed a few deep fly balls that on humid nights might have gone out of the park. He kept the Yankees within striking distance. Meanwhile, Torres was pitching a gem. The Red Sox almost broke the game open in the sixth inning. Lynn was up with two on and two out. He hit a line drive that looked like it was going to be a two-run double into the right field corner, but Lou Pinella had positioned himself so he barely had to jog to make the catch. Guidry called it one of the most underrated plays of that Yankee season because he knew what Pinella had done. Lou was an extremely smart outfielder who would move in the field based on how his pitchers were attacking hitters. He'd take a couple steps to his left or to his right because Guidry was pitching Lynn a certain way. This at-bat, he was pitching Lynn inside, so he took a few steps to the right field line, and it made all the difference. Pinella was just one of the Yankees' outfielders vying for everyday playing time in 1978. They also had Reggie, Roy White, Mickey Rivers, and Gary Thomason, who they acquired in mid-June. When Billy was the manager, every lineup decision he made was magnified. George would criticize, newspapers would highlight, and Billy would rebel. You could set your watch to it. And the fact that the Yankees had four, maybe five legitimate starting outfielders made it even more of a problem. One of the many that led to Billy's resignation. After Lemon took over, the lineup decisions became less scrutinized. He still had to work with a rotation of outfielders, but he did it in a more diplomatic manner than Martin. Down the stretch, the Yankees were the best team in baseball, and a big part of that was because of their strong outfield. So thanks to Lou's heads-up play to end the Red Sox rally, the Yankees only trailed 2 to nothing entering the seventh inning. The Yankees finally mounted a mini-rally in the top of the seventh, really their only rally to that point in the game. Do-up was their shortstop, Bucky Dent, a 240 hitter with no power. The reality is Dent would be lucky to hang onto a roster as a utility infielder today, but by no means would he be the starting shortstop on a competitive team. He was a solid glove and could be hidden in the Yankees lineup ordinarily, but with two on, two out, and down by two runs, this screamed for a pinch hitter. There was just one problem. Jim Spencer, the Yankees' best bat off the bench, just flew out when he was hitting for Brian Doyle in the eighth spot. Doyle was even worse offensively than Dent was, but he was forced into the starting lineup because Willie Randolph was dealing with a hamstring injury. Lemon couldn't take both Doyle and Dent out of the game because then they'd have nobody to play either second or short. The game was now in Dent's hands. Lucky Dent, the batter. They have pinch hit for Doyle. They can ill afford to pinch hit for Dent because you'll run out of infielders. You got Stanley, the only experienced infielder down there on the bench. 
That is all for two. Check swing on a low pitch ball one. Yankees are playing without Willie Randolph. Pulled his hamstring a few days ago. Doyle inserted at second base this afternoon. Now gone for the pinch hitter, so... Dent must bat for himself. Bucky has slid to right and popped up. Runners first and second, two out. The pitch to him, bouncing ball off his foot. Fouled it down off his foot. That one hurt. That's the same foot and hitting spring training. Brenner Gene Monahan has come out to check that. That one appeared to be down lower on the left leg toward the instep than was the one in spring training. It hurts, and Monahan is out there to work on it. Dent checked his swing on the first pitch, and it was low for ball one. Then he fouled the second pitch off his lower shin ankle area, which you heard Messer talking about. Dent was dealing with a shin injury all year from fouling a ball off his leg in spring training. He usually wore a foam pad to protect the area, but he wasn't wearing it for this game. So naturally, he fouled the ball off that exact spot and fell to the ground in pain. Bucky's given up wearing that protection on his left ankle that was a lot of balls down there he had been wearing a shin guard just where he's touching <laughs> the bat boy brings Bucky a new bat and he'll exchange bats the counts one and one two outs and two on the Red Sox lead at two nothing in the seventh inning here at Fenway towards the end of that clip did you hear the announcer say that the bat boy brought Bucky a new bat another amazing tidbit about this moment which doesn't even seem real, is that when Bucky was being looked at by the trainers, Mickey Rivers apparently noticed that his bat had a crack in it. Rivers told the bat boy to go bring Bucky a new bat. He said, tell Bucky there's a lot of hits in it. He'll get a home run. So had Dent not fouled the ball off of his leg, maybe this goes unnoticed and maybe the fly ball he's about to hit doesn't travel quite as far. Stretched by Torres, the set, the kick, and the pitch. Hit deep to left field. This one may be off the wall, maybe in the screen. Deep to left. Yastrzemski will not get it. It's a home run. A three-run home run for Bucky Dent. The Yankees now lead it by a score of three to two. Bucky Dent has just hit his fifth home run of the year into the screen. And look at that Yankee bench, led by Bob Lemon. Big Cliff Johnson out there. And a happy Bucky Dent. Yankees now lead three to two. Well, the last guy on the ball club you'd expect to hit a home run. Just hit one into the screen. Bucky did. Off the bat, the ball looked like it might have a chance to at least scrape the wall, which would have scored one run, maybe two if Yaz didn't play it quickly. The ball just kept going and going and barely fell into the green monster net for a home run. Bucky effing Dent was born and the Yankees had a one-run lead, but the game was far from over. Thurman Munson added a run-scoring double that inning, giving Guidry a two-run lead entering the bottom of the seventh. Gator was pulled after allowing a one-out single. Going into the game six, maybe seven innings was his max because of his recent workload, but he was feeling rejuvenated by the Dent homer and lobbied with Lemon to leave him in the game. But Gossage was ready to go, so that was it for Guidry. His final line was six and a third innings, six hits, two runs, a walk, and five strikeouts. It was a great clutch performance in the biggest game of the season for the Yankees. 
The Goose got the next two hitters easily to end the inning. Reggie Jackson led off the eighth inning with a homer to give the Yankees a three-run lead. It was October, after all. That season, once again, Reggie was involved in all the madness. Everything bubbled to the surface on July 17th. The Yankees were just beginning to turn their season around and were facing the Royals, a team they knew they'd have to beat to reach the World Series. In that game, Martin gave Reggie the bunt signal in the 10th inning to advance Munson to second. The Yankees needed a win so badly that Billy was willing to have his most powerful hitter bunt. After a failed first attempt, Billy changed his mind and gave Reggie the swing away sign, but Reggie continued to try and bunt and eventually popped up his final attempt. There can be no second guessing what Reggie was doing either, because third base coach Dick Hauser even went to Reggie to verbally tell him the bunt was off. Reggie simply ignored his manager. This sent Billy off the deep end. He was so upset about potentially losing his clubhouse, among many other things, that he eventually sabotaged his own job. It was all par for the course in 1978. By then, the Yankees had become legendary for all the wrong reasons. The press had never-ending material with Billy, Reggie, and George, but the rest of the guys had their own tabloid names as well. Thurm, Sparky, Bucky, Lou, Goose, Gator, Figgy, Mick the Quick, Cat, and Puff all provided storylines. One media member that followed the team said any Yankee could be a story any time of any day. Here are some of the highlights from that season. Or maybe you want to call them lowlights. Thurman Munson, the team captain, showed up late for spring training and asked to be traded to the Indians so he could be closer to his home. He also declared that he would not be speaking to the media that season. Sparky Lyle, the 1977 Cy Young winner, also showed up late to camp because he was upset that Steinbrenner signed Goose Gossage and made him the closer. When Lyle finally did arrive, George had hired a marching band to greet him with a rendition of Pomp and Circumstance, which was Lyle's entry music. Lyle didn't appreciate the gesture and asked to be traded. On March 17th, George gathered reporters to rip the team for losing the St. Patrick's Day game. A spring training game. Lyle, Munson, Rivers, White, and Greg Nettles, five established Yankees at that point, all skipped the team's welcome home dinner to send a message to Steinbrenner. The message? We're not your puppets. In May, with Munson still refusing to talk to writers, a New York Times reporter criticized the captain for being grumpy, grouchy, ornery, irascible, and sometimes surly, and that it was all a facade just to make him seem tougher than he really is. After blowing a three-run lead in Kansas City on May 14th, players and coaches got into a drunken argument on a commercial flight to Chicago. Yes, a commercial flight with regular passengers on it. Munson was blaring music from a boombox, Rivers was throwing cards at passengers, Billy called out Munson for not acting like a captain, Dick Hauser almost fought Rivers, and Elston Howard had to step into the middle of all of it to calm people down. As if that wasn't enough, when they got to Chicago, they thought the best place to go was the hotel bar. Billy and Munson got into an argument. Now, some reports say it was an in-person argument, others say it was over the phone. Regardless, the team was a mess. In early June, the Yankees' deficit in the division was starting to grow, and the team started to play worse. Columnist Dick Young began his daily hammering of Billy, essentially calling for his job. The articles especially got to Martin because Steinbrenner and Young were close. By this time, it wasn't just the New York newspapers covering the team. Writers from around the country followed the Yankees like they were a dysfunctional traveling rock band. On June 18th, the day after Guidry's 18 strikeout game, the Yankees lost 3-2 to the Angels on a ninth inning homer by Ron Fairley. Prior to the at-bat, Martin sent pitching coach Art Fowler to the mound to tell Figueroa to pitch around Fairley. Figgy proceeded to pitch to Fairley, giving up the game-deciding home run. After the game, Billy told reporters that he had told Figueroa to pitch around him, 
but he disobeyed his orders. Figgy says he never received those instructions. Either way, it was a terrible look and perhaps a sign that Martin was losing his clubhouse. A few days later in Boston, Billy got into a screaming match with reporters in the clubhouse, accusing them of trying to run him out of town. Later on that same road trip, it became clear to Martin that no matter what the Yankees did on the field, the headline the next day would be about Billy Martin's antics. On June 26th, with the Yankees nine and a half games back, George assured the press that Billy would remain manager for the rest of the year. Ah, George. Things didn't get any better after the All-Star break. As I said, the chaos culminated with the Reggie bunting incident on July 17th, which caused Billy to declare that Reggie should have a lifetime ban from the team. It ended up being only five games, but after his suspension, Reggie had some work to do with his teammates because he had lost some of them for disobeying the manager and possibly costing the Yankees a win. But on the team's next road trip, Billy's drinking was getting out of control. He didn't show up to a game in Minnesota until about an hour before first pitch. Then he made the comments in Chicago that sealed his fate. Referring to Reggie and George, he said, one's a born liar, the other's convicted. Billy resigned the next day, and if he hadn't, he would have been fired. The Post headline pretty much summed it up, goodbye and good riddance. A week after his resignation, Billy returned on Old Timer's Day in one of the most ridiculous Steinbrenner stunts of all time, announcing that Billy would be the manager again in 1980. I covered all this in the Billy Martin history episode, But in case you haven't listened to that one yet, spoiler alert, things didn't go as planned. In the meantime, Bob Lemon was hired as manager. Lemon was a Hall of Fame pitcher for the Indians and the pitching coach for the Yankees under Billy Martin in 1976. Then he went on to manage the White Sox in 77 and 78, but was fired mid-season. Steinbrenner quickly brought him back and then he stepped in for Billy after he resigned. Bob Lemon was the polar opposite of Billy Martin. He brought a calmness to the chaos. But perhaps the most underrated break the Yankees got that season was the newspaper strike in early August. 11 days after his old-timers day return, Billy agreed to a luncheon with all the prominent baseball writers in the New York area, and there were a lot of them. Reporters from the New York Times, the New York Post, Newark Star-Ledger, and Newsday attended this roundtable. It was all coordinated behind Steinbrenner's back. As Billy loosened up, meaning got drunk, he began to let the quotes fly. By then he had made up with George, but he still hated Reggie. He said he meant what he said and that he never considered Reggie a superstar the way the media portrays him to be. He said he never put him ahead of guys like Chambliss, Munson, Randolph, or Rivers. Then he added, there were times I put Chicken Stanley ahead of him. Fred Chicken Stanley was a 216 hitter and a career backup infielder. It was a preposterous statement. The media had what they wanted, another controversial headline from the mouth of Billy Martin and they knew George was going to be furious because it would create more drama for his team that had seemingly, finally gotten past all the drama. When George heard about the luncheon, he was indeed furious. But lucky for him and lucky for the Yankees, it was August 9th, the night the newspapers went on strike. There would be no papers printed that night, and as the strike lingered on, the Yankees flew under the radar. Smaller papers covered the team and a few upstart ones tried to make a name for themselves, but the major ones, the Times, the Post, and Newsday, were not there to amplify the Yankees' chaos to the masses. The team went 37-14 and after the paper strike, and Lemon later said, The strike, coming when it did, did more for us than if we picked up a 20-game winner. But getting back to the game, Gossage got roughed up in the eighth inning, allowing four hits and two runs to make it a 5-4 game. The difference was now Reggie's solo blast. Boston mounted a rally in the ninth as well. After a one-out walk to Rick Burleson, 
Jerry Remy hit a looping single to right field. It was a little after 5 p.m. at this point, and the sun, which sets behind third base at Fenway, was getting tough. Pinella lost the ball, freezing in his tracks out in right field. Pinella can't see the ball! And they hold the runner at second base. Luke could not see the ball. Question form is hit right at him. And he got it on the first hop. When he finally picked it back up, the ball had fallen in front of him for a hit and was about to bounce past him to his left. All he could do was throw out his glove and hope to snag it, which he did, and then fired at third base. This kept Burleson at second and was the second key play Lou made in right field. The difference was huge. First and second with one out versus first and third or possibly worse with one out. The next hitter, Jim Rice, hit a deep fly ball to right field that would have scored Burleson on a sack fly if not for Pinella's play. The lefty hitting Yaz was up next. He homered off Guidry in the second and singled off Goose in the eighth. The Yankees had a little trick up their sleeve if they wanted to use it. They had lefty Sparky Lyle in the bullpen. Lyle was the 1977 Cy Young winner for having tossed 137 innings in 72 games as the Yankees' closer. Even though he was the best relief pitcher in the league that year, George wanted more, so he signed free agent Goose Gossage before the 78 season. As I mentioned before, this created some issues. Lyle felt he earned the closer role for, you know, winning the Cy Young Award, but Goose had hype and he was expensive. After struggling as a starter early in his career, Goose moved to the bullpen in 1975 when he was with the White Sox. He flourished as a reliever, and he's not afraid to tell you about it now. Even though Lyle wasn't especially happy and Goose got off to a slow start, the Yankees had a two-headed monster in the bullpen. This was rare for that era. Both were capable of closing games and both could pitch multiple innings. Baseball was different on many levels back then, but with Lyle and Gossage and then later Ron Davis and Gossage, the Yankees shortened the game. While Billy wasn't the manager the entire time, he was a proponent of exploiting the best matchups possible. He wasn't afraid to use a reliever earlier in the game than was normal back then. A big reason why the Yankees won in 77 and 78 was because they were playing a more modern game than many teams who were still stuck in the previous decades, where your starting pitcher stayed out there until he finished the game or lost the game. So Lyle could have been used for Yaz. A lefty-lefty matchup would have made sense. Maybe Martin makes this move, but Lemon left Gossage in. While maybe it wasn't the right decision on paper, it worked. Yaz popped up to end the game. The comeback was complete, but the job wasn't done. The Yankees advanced to the ALCS versus Kansas City, which started the very next day. It was the third year in a row those two teams met in the ALCS, and despite George Brett's heroics, the Yankees won in four games. The World Series was a rematch as well, Yankees versus Dodgers. It wouldn't have been right to end the 78 season without a little drama. The Yankees fell behind 0-2 in the series, but then swept the next four games to win it in six. In the Bronx, the Dodgers were overmatched, even though there was a report that surfaced that several Yankees broke curfew. Lemon, unlike Martin would have done, diffused the situation by saying, I can tell you that it's not true, and the reason I know it's not true is I don't have a curfew. After they clinched victory in LA, the Yankees were spent. Gossage remembers the celebration being subdued because they were so mentally exhausted. Exhausted from all the ups and downs. Exhausted from chasing Boston. 
Exhausted from the endless headlines, media questions, and manager controversy. Exhausted from the tiebreaker game. The famous Game 163 featured five Hall of Famers, Reggie, Goose, Yaz, Fisk, and Rice. It was started by the year's most dominant pitcher. It was closed by one of the game's best relievers. Great defensive plays were made, but it was Bucky Dent who stole the show. Bucky continued his surprising production in the World Series, hitting 417 with seven RBIs and winning the series MVP. But his career is known for that one home run. Gidry went on to have a great career, but no season was as dominant as his Cy Young 78. He was later named co-captain of the Yankees in the 80s and served as their pitching coach under Joe Torre in 2006 and 2007. Mike Torres pitched the next few seasons in Boston, but like the Red Sox, was on the downswing. Zimmer was fired in 1980 after the Red Sox only got worse after their epic 1978 collapse. Thurman Munson was not traded and remained Yankees captain until his tragic death the next summer. Reggie remained with the Yankees through 1981, but then signed with the Angels in free agency. His number is retired in Monument Park for his contributions to the late 1970s Yankees championships. Billy Martin was rehired as manager during the 79 season, but then fired and hired and hired and fired many more times after that. Again, go check out the Billy history episode if you haven't already. Bob Lemon managed the Yankees again in parts of the 81 and 82 seasons, but he never gets the credit he deserves for managing the out-of-control Yankees train back onto its tracks in 1978. A lot of things had to break right for the Yankees to win the championship in 78. From 14 down on July 19th to up one on October 2nd, it was the craziest ride any team has ever gone on. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.